0: Hi, and I've got a question for you. What do you get if you cross a snowy holiday with the principal chip scientist at Nordic Semiconductor? An A to D taped out on Tiny Tape out by Carsten. Hi Carsten, how's it going? Hi, how's it going? How's it going? It's going yeah, good. Yeah, great to uh, see you in an interview call. Normally used to seeing you on the YouTube channel.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Tell us briefly about the story of uh, your snowy holiday.
1: Right, so it actually started right before the holiday. So I got to learn that on the Tiny tip Out 6, there was the option of doing analog. And then uh, we got in touch somehow through YouTube, LinkedIn, something. And you mentioned if I had any sort of designs ready. And I first thought, no, 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 that's way too much work. I don't have time for that. But then I had holiday. We have a concept called winter holiday here in Norway. So I went up to the mountains with my kids and brought my computer and actually had some time to code on my SAR. So this is a design that I had from, well, way back when. And actually, I guess last Friday, I was able to complete it and then submit it. And yeah, a really fun story.
0: Yeah. So um, you've already done a video about an hour long, really going into the details of the the SAR. And it's a fascinating watch. And there's a, a paper as well. So if you're interested to find out all the gory details, then check out the video, which I'll link above somewhere. Um, and on this video, I wanted to more kind of get to know you a bit as a, a person and ask you some difficult questions. Good. <laughs> so I hope you're ready. <laughs> um, and yeah, looking through your uh, CV, which you posted online, um it's amazing to be talking to the principal ic scientist for all nordic right semi. yeah <laughs> well thank you <laughs> yeah. yeah and you're you're kind of um been involved in the nr51 series analog design and all of that
1: yes so i started in nordic 15 years ago right after my mm. phd so i i usually say it's my first and only real job is mm. uh, a nordic semiconductor yeah so uh, most of the time I've been working on analog design but then i led the wireless group for uh about seven years. But then now moved back to a more sort of technical role, where, Mm. yeah, I have the nice title of being the IC scientist.
0: Yeah, it's a cool job (laughs) title. And for me, it's really interesting, because you're very obviously very high up in the industry. um, And you're also really interested in the idea of open source semiconductors. So that's really what I wanted to talk to you about. Um, So yeah, why open source? So I guess it started, I should
1: also mention that I teach at uh, the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. So I'm um, there 20% one day a week teaching a course on advanced integrated circuits. And that's really because we see from Nordic side that we, we need more analog designers. Um, over time, we need them to be educated and that's sort of why I've joined in on at NTNU. And when I saw, I think this was 2021 probably when I discovered the Skywater PDK. And I've been looking for that type of opportunity because I've been working on closed source type of or uh, closed NDA type of PDKs for a long time. But my interest really lies in how do we make analog circuits? How do we simplify mm. that? And that's quite hard when you only work on closed source um, PDKs and also on binary files. So the fact that now there was this open source pdk there was the magic tool which i love the fact that it's text files there was xgem which is also text files that enabled me to actually port the work that i've already been doing for about 10 years over to skywater oh. and really get going and sort of go all in mm-hmm. and um yeah i think it's a interesting ride
0: yeah <laughs> maybe this is a good point to ask you how the professional tools compare with the open source tools
1: yeah so i'm kind kind of have the opinion that all the professional tools are expensive very expensive and they're kind of not that good because they don't have that many users i mean Mm. what we do when we make integrated circuits is quite a specialized skill which means that tools are not that great because not many people use them So what i like about the open source tools is that well of course they're not as polished as the professional tools but they're free and a great thing about them is that you don't have any blockers for innovation so anybody can add anything to the simulation tools or to magic or whatever so when it comes to comparison between open source and professional tools i don't necessarily think it's sort of a direct comparison so mm. if you compare uh, magic to, to uh, so layout excel or that type of uh, i guess the normal standard then of course layout excel is better it has more features it has schematic driven layout it has a lot of those sort of uh, features to simplify the day but you can still do the work in magic
0: and that's cool. Hmm. One day we'll get air wires for magic and X-GEM and that will be really great.
1: <laughs> yeah, or we go the uh finally maybe get the automatic analog layout to work mm-hmm. after that yeah. I
0: don't know 30, 40 years I'll we'll try. yeah yeah um okay. and does Nordic semiconductor endorse your efforts in open source semiconductors or is it like a completely side part of the of, the, of your equation?
1: So I would say that Nordic endorses my working at NTNU and then working with the open source tools there. Uh, I would say that within Nordic, I know we have multiple employees that use the open source tools, but not really as part of the standard sort of IC development. Mm -hmm. Of course, the trigger for that is as soon as we can see that we can actually do a part of the job in the open source tools, then I think
0: it will happen because it's free. I don't know if that answers your question but (laughs) yeah yeah partially um one of the other questions i had was um what obstacles do you think there are for open source silicon so maybe we could just split that into two and say what obstacles do you think there are for the open source tools within a company like nordic
1: so i think there's a couple of things there first of all it has to have the pdk that we're actually interested in so we decide on technology based on usually its cost So Nordic is in sort of the, not the ultra low cost, but pretty low cost type of Mm. system on chips with radios. And there it's picking technology that is correct or right for us. And of course, then the tools need to have support for that type of uh, technology. But uh, let's say that we actually assume that we're doing something in Skywater. Then I think what's blocking us now is the trust so can we trust that the models are good can we trust that there is no what should we say bugs in the tools mm. and i think we can build up that trust by actually doing what we're doing now in the open source community and with tiny tape out sort of iterating on designs iterating on tape outs finding problems fixing them and so on
0: yeah, yeah. and as as a kind of broader picture like exclu- outside of nordic what do you think what are the um, obstacles, what are the kinds of things that people say why they think that it, it, um, open source semiconductor tools can't work?
1: Well, I think there's a lot of opinions out there. And, um, but when it comes to blockers, things actually preventing progress, I think many of them have been removed by the fact that mm. we now have the open source PDK. We now have the, op- the full sort of flow is there. It's possible to tape out and the fact that the work that you're doing and others are doing to sort of making it uh, accessible and cheaper, that's really a good thing. So now what I think is blocking us is, well, it's not really something blocking us. It's just a matter of time. Now, hopefully it's with enough people, with enough uh, effort, we will make it into viable professional tools. And I, I'd, I'd love to see that day, because I'd love to encourage my friends in the EDA industry to uh, improve a bit, to get a bit yeah. challenged.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, your point about any, it being more open to innovation or, like, or fixing bugs or documentation or things like that, that's yeah. a really great point. Um, and it's
1: cool to see. I, I didn't know, actually, that we had the possibility to do co simulation of digital and analog. And mm. that's something I saw from deck. with, I think it was Verilator and then ng-spice. Yes, yeah, a
0: new feature of ng-spice, yeah.
1: Exactly, and, th- and that's the type of thing that's actually hard in the uh, normal EDA tools also. Mm. So, yeah, we have an opportunity here to really uh, improve, I think. Great,
0: yeah. Um, so a uh, question kind of on the uh, Skywater open source PDK do you think is there and the way and your experience inside Nordic choosing the right technology for the product? Do you think there's a industrial use case where Sky one thirty would make sense, or is it mostly only for education training purposes?
1: So let me speak on the one thirty node as in general. Mm -hmm. Because back in the day when we did the NRF51 series, which was a quite often used Bluetooth type of product, that was actually 180 nanometer technology. So it it is Mm -hmm. possible to do quite complex system on chips in a 130 technology. I think these days, the type of uh, industrial products that that would fit well would be maybe power management circuits, maybe energy harvesting circuits that require a bit higher voltage, and not too complex system on chips. Mm. So definitely there are possibilities there. Also the fact that Sky 130 has an RM feature, which is cool, uh, that makes it uh, an interesting technology. But of course, when it comes to competing with the lower scale or the nanoscale technologies, it becomes a bit difficult because if you have millions of gates, digital gates on your design, then it's Mm. probably not going to be the right technology. But for analog, I, I would say it's the last comfortable node is
0: 130 okay that's yeah. a nice uh way to put it yeah yeah, yeah. and i'm uh, uh finally putting some effort into my own analog journey and taking inspiration from your uh great youtube oh, channel great thanks. yeah and um, your book as well i just discovered from your website so we'll link that in there uh, in the yeah, cool. description yeah.
1: yeah yeah there's a new version in progress now because i'm teaching the course now which means i'm iterating on <laughs> all the
0: chapters yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Great. Yes. Uh, okay. So what are the questions did I have? Um, uh, here's one. So, and it's kind of a good segue is, uh, I'm just starting on my journey now. And one of the things that makes, in my opinion, analog a, mo- a lot more difficult than the digital stuff is maybe the digital is more fully automated. So mm. we have a, the open lane flow. There's more than open lane as well. Um, but typically, you put your RTL in and you get a GDS out that is ready to tape out. Um, with the analog, it's like you need to be familiar with four or five tools. And for each tool, there's, they're all quite different and they all have their own secrets. Put yeah. it that way. Yeah. yeah. Um, what would you suggest? How would you recommend a newcomer to get started with analog?
1: I think the first thing to realize is that it's going to be a lifelong journey. Mm. It is not simple. And one of the reasons it's not simple is because it's dealing with the real world. Analog is the interface to the real world on integrated circuits. Now digital, we've made this fantastic abstraction that there is something called a one and a zero, right? And then from there we can do almost anything and be certain it's going to work. That's not the case for analog. You Mm. do something and most of the time it doesn't work. So I think getting into analog, it's about, of course, learning the tools, trying things, but also learning the transistors, the solid-state physics, and realizing and be comfortable with that you will not know everything, and Hmm. things will go wrong. (laughs) But that's also fun. As long as you don't care about the money, then you learn something (laughs) new.
0: Yeah, Actually, when I was looking through your book, uh, and your website there's a fair amount of philosophy in there like life philosophy do you think that 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 part of you is is kind of what makes you a good fit for analog or do you think that you have right. had to learn that as a because of your profession
1: no I I actually do believe there is sort of a fundamental difference in personality at least if you look at the mean analog designer versus the mean mm. digital designer or the average digital designer which is the average analog I think for analog designers, they're more comfortable with not knowing and sort of this uncertainty and it doesn't really matter that much. All, all rules are guidelines for an analog designer. Mm. While if you sort of put it in a box, I find that digital designers maybe like things to be structured and organized and to know things. And that's mm. possible in digital design while it, I don't think it's necessarily possible in analog design. So yeah. I have this philosophy that there is a slight difference in personality and maybe that's what draws us to the different areas. But of course, this is a causal or correlation. It's not necessarily a causality. Causation. Right? Yeah. yeah. Causation. That's the word.
0: I think it's a great point that you make about um, the abstraction, and it's something that is very easy to forget that you're doing as a programmer or as a digital designer. You just take that one and zero concept at, as a like a a real thing, and then it's yeah. only when you start getting into simulating the transistors that you realise no. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and, and every all the work that we do in OpenLane is really to ensure that that assumption is still true.
0: Yeah, and that you can leverage being able to write one line of Verilog that instantiates 10,000 transistors and never even know about it.
1: Exactly, yeah. And, yeah. Th- and there that's where the hard part about the analog is, I think. I, I don't think it's that easy to find those abstractions. You kind of have to deal with the physicality of the thing.
0: Hmm. Know which rule of thumb to use at the right moment
1: yeah and when yeah. they don't work anymore
0: mm. yeah when you, when you can stop trusting it yeah 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 which does happen like i think you still have these things with the digital side like meta stability that yes. is easy to think that is not there until it bites you and then you have to understand that yeah you do yeah. need to pay attention to some of these kinds of things but most of the time you can get away with uh even making Terrible. <laughs> RTL, and it still works. <laughs> ask me sure. how I yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, great. So those are most of my questions. We do have a couple of other questions from uh, people I asked who were yeah. interested to yeah. ask you some things. Um, so one question comes from um, someone who's beginning with analog design, and they want to know how to close the loop with a mixed signal design. Where you have to design to iterate yes um, so any comments on that
1: yeah so the, i think it's realizing that in analog design right you start with the schematics and then when you're happy with your simulations you run all the temperature uh, different temperatures you run all different voltages you run all the different transistor corners and resistor corners and capacitor corners at some point you decide now it's a good time to start the layout hmm. so you draw again oh. the same thing and then you extract the parasitics and then after that you have to simulate again now, if it doesn't work, then what you actually have to do is go all the way back to schematics and then start again. Mm. And this is where analog design really can take a lot of time because those loops can be quite long, days, weeks, months. And I've experienced some designs that have been maybe 10 times through this loop. Mm. So that's kind of the reason why in my SAR and sort of the idea behind the SAR is to get to the layout as fast as possible so you actually just skip the simulation on the schematic and you go straight to layout but of course mm. you have to get the layout then <laughs> so when it comes to mix signal uh, then usually it's sufficient to consider it as two separate blocks you have your analog and you have your digital as long as the interface between them is relatively well defined then it's possible to make a model of the analog system in the digital with a verilog and mm. as long as you hook it up correctly it'll be fine the challenging parts come when you have tight feedback loops like in all digital plls or in some adcs there you actually have to co-simulate Hmm. Simulate both the digital and analog. But, like, uh, yeah. like I think you made an RDAC, right, for your yeah. uh, tape out. That's kind mm-hmm. of a case where you have a digital section and you have an analog section, but you could actually just model the digital stimuli as a piecewise linear function in SPICE if you wanted to and hmm. get maybe enough information about the analog performance. Yeah, my fact-
0: XSChem just uses pulse transient generators it's half frequencies to generate uh, all the yeah, codes exactly. to drive yeah. it one cycle yeah
1: and that might be good enough I think the hard part about uh, analog and, and mix signal is you can do a lot of things but not everything will give you value so mm. sort of the that's where the experience comes in is um is this something something I actually have to do to make it work mm. maybe yeah but then, of that's, course, I should mention also that usually when you get the chips back, you can be surprised that
0: things can go wrong. Hmm, yeah. A whole new set of um, issues to care about. But maybe that's like why um, it seems to me that analog designers uh, start off with a much better defined spec before they even start working.
1: Yeah, I, that's usually necessary because if you make an LDO or you make a power management system, you kind of have to know, for example, how much current it's going to draw. And if that changes, let's say we get to the end, we've done our layout, and suddenly somebody says, oh, it wasn't 30 milliamps, it was 100 milliamps. Hmm. Then you have to go all the way back to the beginning. So as you go through the analog process, changes to spec is quite costly because you've already proceeded down a quite locked path. You can't change Mm. the transistor sizes that easily because you have to move everything on the layout around. While I Mm. think on the digital side, you really work up into the the RTL, and you could also work up until the GDS, and then you can iterate, right? Because changes in spec is
0: quite easy. Yeah, you might start with an 8-bit wide data bus because that makes it faster to simulate or whatever, and then you know eventually you'll it will just be a parameter, and you'll flip it over to sixteen and just rerun the the flow. And
1: exactly, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, related to this, um, there's a question about the um, the machine learning, the AI layout, because I've seen a few startups um, promising to reduce analog layout time by basically learning from previous. I mean, I don't yeah don't really know how they how they plan to do it do you think there's that's gonna make an impact into analog layout design
1: I think the hard part there is finding enough data so hmm. we know it's that not published exactly so I mean the data for layout will be with with the um, companies so maybe yeah. the big ones like Nvidia—they have a lot, of, a lot of layouts uh, internally, and they have a lot of uh, AI stuff they can train, <laughs> or uh, models they can train on the layouts. So maybe for mm. some big companies it is possible. But for example, if I was Nordic or I am Nordic, and we had an AI that could actually train, be trained on our layouts, then I mm-hmm. wouldn't want to give that to anybody else. Yeah, because there's so much of the. Uh, skills are actually in the layout so i think that the availability of good data is the challenge Mm. but maybe we can fix that with open source (laughs) so let's see yeah
0: yeah um okay so Um. here's a here's a good one um what is there anything that you can do if you don't trust the spice models yes if you don't trust the PDK very much yes there is and that this is something that happens quite often
1: um, at least in the early days of a process Hmm. first of all you have to trust your brain you have to trust your knowledge about solid state physics such that if the models or simulations tell you something that you feel is wrong maybe (laughs) maybe I'm right maybe Hmm. my brain is correct but quite often we do trust the models and then we tape out and then we get Mm. the chips back and we discover well something is weird there here Mm. I've experienced that a couple of times where we actually see behavior that is not covered in the spice model Mm. and then we basically have to iterate because as soon as we understand the physical phenomena for why it goes wrong we can usually find a fix in the design that sort of prevents prevents it from happening a good example there is um, there are multiple different types of noise sources like thermal noise we have flicker noise but also in some technologies we are starting to see what's called telegraph noise or burst noise which is a mm-hmm. slightly dis- different um, statistical phenomena but that is not in a standard sort of bsim 4.7 spice model so there you actually have to know that it's there that type of noise is there and you have to put in circuits to alleviate cons- those concerns
0: even though you wouldn't even see the result of them in the simulation maybe
1: yeah you're basically simulating blind but you know that for the real circuit it's going to be a good thing
0: mm. well that's a uh, real deep inside knowledge i guess that's the kind of thing that you build up with years of experience
1: yeah and, and it's sort of an exploratory journey you have mm. to like the mystery of it you have to love the fact that things go wrong and you want to figure out the philosophy.
0: Why yeah <laughs> yeah I was when I was reading your paper um the 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 phrase "state of the art struck me quite a few times, and it just made me think it's like, where does that phrase come from? state of the art we, oh. it's like a technical thing, but in technology, we're often a bit kind of uh, we want to push the art away and we want to do everything with computers and equations.
1: Yeah, but there's still beauty in electronics, I think Mm-hmm. There's yeah. a beauty in both digital and in analog. Uh, yeah. I think for analog, the beauty can be in the schematics, can be in the layout. In the layout, yeah. Yeah, The beauty of digital, digital. is definitely not in a layout because that's a, no. just a random mess, but <laughs> it can be in the architectures, it can be yeah. in the RTL,
0: yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was one of, the f- one of the first people I interviewed about analog layout was Thomas Parry at Spherical Systems. He's doing like satellite stuff. Right. And he did a a PLL that looked to me great because it had this kind of fourfold symmetry. And he one of the things he told me was that um, with analogue, if the layout looks good, then that's a good sign. Yeah, I agree to that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe let's uh, end the interview with a couple of um, stories from your uh, experience at the coalface. Tell us some things that went horribly wrong or... Were broken tape outs or wasted millions of dollars (laughs) (laughs) so I won't take
1: all all the stories but I do remember a couple there's a there's one from very early on in my career and this was actually not a design that I worked on myself but we were sitting in the lab we knew that the ADC inside the chip it had a gainer but we didn't understand why and we had tested everything up and down and so on and in the end we were sort of lost for what to try next but i remember pushing the pcb so just pushing the edges of the pcb mm. and suddenly i could see the band gap sort of drifting up and down 100 millivolts and then you sort of going to "Whoa, why and then you start searching and searching and searching and inside we discovered that there happened to be a current mirror where pmos current mirror where one of the transistors were this way the other one was that way and it turns out that when you stress a pmos due to something in the solid state physics the mobility of holes the uh, majority carrier in pmos actually have a different behavior depending on the direction of the stress Hmm. so the current goes up on one side and down on the other side and that type of failures well of course it should never been been rotated anyway but this is sort of a Call it a mistake that happened one day for one person. And unless you have something that discovers that mistake, then it hits the market. Mm. And that's kind of the thing about analog design. When you do it in industry, you have to have sort of layers upon layers with safety nets. Mm. Because also, since there's a lot of money involved, as you mentioned, there's tens of millions of dollars maybe involved for the uh, most extreme nodes. That's a lot of responsibility to put on one person. Which means that you kind of can't <laughs> you can't have a junior designer designing a block and then being responsible for a million dollar mistake you have yeah. to put in safety nets but i do remember one of my own sort of really early mistakes was uh, i was working on the adc on the 52 series the peripheral adc and this was the first tape out so we all, always do sort of a number of tape outs before we hit the market but on the first tape out i was testing the adc and For some reason, a lot of current went into the uh, input, and that shouldn't happen. But every time the clock sampled, there was a lot of current going in. Trace back to turned out, I had used the wrong transistor in the schematic, such that in the sampling switch, where I was trying to be clever and switching the bulk of the transistor, I was actually connecting the input directly to the substrate because it happened not to have a deep end well layer <laughs> underneath the transistor. And at that time, this was a relatively fresh technology, so we didn't have the check in the LVS deck at that time. Mm. So these type of things happen. But my experience is that it's, it's usually the simple things that really get you. Hmm. It's not the things that you worried about for the key performance. It is the inverter that you forgot to check or the logic gate that you forgot to check or the two's complement that happens to be offset binary and those type of, hmm. call it stupid mistakes that always happens because we are human.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. So nice. I, Thanks for sharing. Yeah. Any last remarks? I uh, Maybe on that point because you have to
1: become slightly comfortably numb when you're an analog designer it's like that is it a pink floyd song called comfortably numb or at least it's it does sound familiar but yeah i don't know where from and that's something i I used to tell them because i hired analog designers for quite a few years i used to tell them that you have to become comfortably numb because you will make mistakes things will happen and you still have to proceed and actually make something you have to fix it move on Hmm. and not worry about the millions of dollars that uh (laughs) <laughs> go out the window because that's somebody else's problem.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's a nice message to end on. So, if you're thinking about getting into analog design, don't worry about making mistakes. Just go on and do something cool anyway. Yeah, innovate, <laughs> innovate, and join the open source revolution. Yes, with us. <laughs> <laughs> Come and have fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks very much for your time, I well, Super appreciate it, and uh, looking forward to seeing uh, how well the The A to D um, worked that you taped out. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Thanks a lot.